Hello, this is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach, and I'm the founder of PCOS Diva. And polycystic ovarian syndrome is one of the leading causes of infertility with women. And working with women with PCOS and PCOS Diva now for four years, so many women are coming to the site looking for help um, and information as they're trying to conceive in their fertility journey. Uh, and so tonight, I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Mark Perlow w- with me. Dr. Perlow is one of the leading fertility docs here in the, the U.S. He is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and is the medical director of Georgia Reproductive Specialists. Dr. Perlow has expertise in treating infertility, PCOS, reoccurrent pregnancy loss, fibroids, male fertility problems, and other reproductive health problems using the latest assisted reproductive technologies. And he's also served as a principal investigator in numerous clinical research trials, including innovative IVF treatments. He serves on the advisory board of the Journal of Fertility and Sterility, and his research has been published in Human Reproduction, Fertility and Sterility, and other medical journals. He also co-authored the book Miracle Babies and Other Happy Endings for Couples with Fertility Problems. He's the creator of IVF.com and is a frequent speaker at Community. I, I know I've um, he's been speaking at other PCOS events um, and other prov- professional educational events. So. Without further ado, Dr. Perlo, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to, um, I know when we were talking to prepare for the interview, we, we were talking a little bit about how women with PCOS um, often think that PCOS is an ovary issue. And you had this really great analogy um, and it, I thought it really did a, um, a wonderful job explaining insulin resistance and how PCOS is really an insulin resistance issue. And I was hoping that you can kind of open with that really wonderful analogy, and it, I think it helps women understand what can be kind of a complex um, topic. So uh, first let me get there in a little bit of a roundabout way. Um, I think one of the problems with PCOS is that for the longest time there were a number of different ways to diagnose this or make the diagnosis, and the Europeans had one set of rules and the Americans have another. We've gotten together now and come up with the same uh, set of diagnostic criteria, but because we were working on different things, um, the research studies were not necessarily transferable from one side of the ocean to the other. We now have gotten together and we've decided that there are three criteria, irregular periods, ovaries that look polycystic, um, and abnormal male hormone levels or signs of male hormone excess. If you have two of those three things, then you have PCOS. And looking at the research over many years, we found out that uh, insulin resistance was probably the culprit for the majority of people who demonstrated the syndrome PCOS. And um, I'm going to give you two analogies of sorts. One is uh, to understand insulin resistance, and the other is how we might approach it with treatment. 
and the uh the first is a car engine when you're looking at a uh a car you want to buy this car the engine may be out of tune so for a while you can just feed the engine a little bit more gas and keep up with the rest of the traffic so that's what your body is doing we feed a little bit more insulin into the system and we keep your blood sugars normal too many docs misunderstand and think well you have a normal blood sugar and therefore you don't have insulin resistance and that's just not true so you get into this car and you do a fasting early morning engine idle blood test and you're going to find that your insulin and sugar are both very low and normal it's like you get into that car the engine's out of tune but at idle it runs smoothly and you say i've got a good car here um, but then you decide let's take it out on the freeway so you floor it and that's when the engine gets rough and you have to keep up with the other traffic you've got to keep the engine floored so you're feeding your body all this insulin to um, keep your blood sugars normal and um, that insulin is causing pollution it adversely affects the ovaries mm. it adversely affects your cholesterol it causes you to gain weight it causes blood pressure to go up so all these things may be uh due to this relative increase in insulin and then over the years you lose the cells in the pancreas that make insulin and you get into your 50s and 60s and in some cases now we're seeing it even earlier where people end up diabetic where they're not able to keep track of all that extra demand for insulin so um we know now let me go to the other analogy we know that the muscles clear about 80% of the sugar from the bloodstream carbohydrates and um uh, that means more muscle more um more stuff cleared in fact um the calories that you need or determined how many calories you should have in a day depends upon that that muscle so insulin resistance if it turns out that the muscles are already filled with fat and sugar that that's stored the pantry is filled and you can't hide any more of the sugar that comes in the insulin is going to go up and try to um to address that and bring it back down and as i was learning about this my son was living in china at that time and commuted through a subway station and he showed me a video on youtube of a chinese subway station at rush hour and at rush hour all the people are coming down the stairways onto the platform like the carbohydrates come into your bloodstream they don't do it the rest of the day but they sure do at lunchtime or breakfast when you eat a lot of carbs the train pulls into the station and the train is already filled with carbohydrates and fat so the people can't get in and they have police officers or transit officers who start pushing people into these already filled subway cars and as you watch this video more and more people more and more of these officers come and try to push people into uh-huh. the cars so it's kind of like the body putting out more and more insulin trying to push the sugar into your muscles that are already filled Mm-hmm. Well, that analogy goes even further and that's why this is it's so wonderful in that uh it gives you 
clues to how you might address it. In the subway station, if it, the traffic is too heavy, um, spread when you travel throughout the day. Work at home for a while. With PCOS, spread your calories out throughout the day. Don't have a bulk of carbohydrate calories all at one time. The second thing is that if people are traveling throughout the day, maybe the muscles won't be so filled. If you exercise, you are going to build more muscle. Strength training exercise will build muscle, so there will be more room to clear this from the platforms. And um, then your insulin levels will drop, your cholesterol will drop, and um, you'll start losing weight if you uh, build muscle. And then the other thing is if the carbohydrates come down and these uh, transit guys are pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to get the people into the car, after a while some people just get up and walk away. And what's happening in the body is um, very high levels of insulin, the muscles are already filled, your body can turn those carbohydrates into cholesterol and triglycerides and you'll store them in your belly and in the liver and get fatty liver and fatty belly and and what have you. Um, I thanked my son and I said, you know, I finally understand this. It was just great. Yeah, you know, it's so great to have like a visual like that to, for these complex kind of body processes. And I love, I just kind of wrote this down when you said more muscle, more of the bad stuff, the sugar is cleared. And I think women with PCOS are really hesitant to put to do the strength training. Um, I know that has made a huge impact in my health. I go pretty religiously to, twice a week to um, a class called Body Pump, where it's barbell kind of full body interval training workout, and I mm-hmm. love it. And it makes me feel good, and um, it really helps me to manage my um, my weight and my blood sugar. But I think a lot of women, um, and I'm hearing this, that that doctors are telling them not to put on muscle because it's going to raise your androgens that are already raised. Well, that's just just totally wrong. So one of the, I mean, the, in fact, it probably would lower that because you're going to be lowering insulins and it's the insulin stimulating the ovary that is increasing androgen production. Um, So the... You know, the people who you see in the magazines and, and stuff who look like they, they've got 12 packs and 18 packs and all these <laughs> ripples and they grease themselves up. They're spending hours and hours and hours in the gym, but they also have the genetic propensity to do that. The average person, pretty much no matter how they exercise, they're not going to end up being muscle-bound like that. Mm-hmm. Um There was an interesting study, a fellow in South Carolina uh, partnered with someone in uh, uh, Canada at McGill University, and they took more than 100 people, divided them into two groups. One group did an hour to an hour and a half of aerobics daily, and the other group did one session of strength training a week. Uh And the group that did the daily aerobics ended up, after 15 to 20 minutes, they used up all the ready fat and carbohydrate in the muscle. After that, after about 15, 20 minutes of aerobic exercise, your body's going to start to break down the muscle. So they ended up losing seven pounds of muscle. 
Mm. So they patted themselves on the back and say, look, you guys are sitting on the couch every day except for one, and we are burning another 450 calories a day. The problem is because they lost muscle mass, their body needed 450 calories a day less, and they stayed the same. But now that they had less muscle, their cholesterol went up and their insulin went up. On the other hand, the group that did the single strength training exercise, and this is intense training like you're describing, those people gained six to seven pounds of muscle. So they worked out one day. They burned the 450 calories that day. And with high-intensity strength training, you have what's called an afterburn, so you're going to get another hour to 90 minutes of uh, burning even after you're done. But then since their body um, put on that muscle after six or seven weeks, their body was requiring 450 calories a day more. They did not increase their diet, so they were losing one to two pounds a week at that point. Since they had more muscle to clear the sugar from the bloodstream, their cholesterol and insulin levels and blood pressure went down. So strength training is a thing. Now, um, the aerobics will help a little bit with belly fat, um, but the main thing that aerobics will do is increase your endurance. You'll be able to climb stairs. You'll be able to walk further or do more before you start actually feeling pain in your muscle. So I recommend 15 to 20 minutes of fairly intense aerobics two to three times a week, and Mm -hmm. then the majority of the stuff being strength training. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I'm hearing as well, especially if you can do um the the like an interval, that that 15 to 20 minutes if you do the high intensity intervals, um like the the peak 8, I don't know if you've heard about that um type of cardio training where you work out at full capacity for 30 seconds and then you recover mm-hmm. for 90 and then just do that um repeat that 8 times. And um uh, I think that's, you don't have to kill yourself at the gym. That's what I tell my clients. It's just you have to work smarter. Well, I love I that like, you... yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things with aerobic type exercises is that you're not always affecting the large muscles. And it's the, uh, you know, the thigh muscles, the uh, upper arm muscles that are going to be the ones that will most likely grow and do the work of uh, clearing sugar from the bloodstream. So I think the, uh, I th- this is just my experience, I think from what I've been reading, weightlifting is a very important component of it to, um, you know, to take care of cholesterol and uh, insulin levels. So with your PCOS patients, uh, that you're treating for infertility, um, what type of advice are you giving them? I mean, obviously, exercise more, weight training, um, but what other lifestyle modifications do you, um, what would you like to see from your patients? Well, I think the biggest thing is, and the biggest challenge is that by the time someone gets to a reproductive endocrinologist, they want fertility stuff done to them. And they've done two or three cycles of Clomid. It didn't work. And their doctor said they need IVF, and they come to us, and that's what they want. Or they want injectable medicines. And 
the first thing is convincing them that their body really does know what it's supposed to do and that uh, oftentimes we're not only going to improve their general health and health over the life, but they may well achieve a pregnancy without having to resort to the high-tech stuff. So the people have to be able to believe that. Um, Rob Norman and David Clark in uh, Australia did a, a wonderful trial where people there got free IVF, but they had to um, join this program for six months beforehand. And 90s, these were women with PCOS. They did exercise and cooking classes and psychology, and they went out to restaurants and ate together. And at the end of the six months, they had close to 90% that were having regular cycles. So it's an amazingly uh, effective approach, but it does take work, and doing it alone is not the easiest thing in the world. So what we try to do is tell them that they may want to partner with people in dealing with um, the three core functions for um, PCOS. So one would be, obviously, the exercise the other is a low glycemic diet, and there are all kinds of permutations of diets that work. But you, you know, being in Atlanta, you can't drink Coke, you can't drink sweet tea down in the South. <laughs> You've got to cut back on the pasta and bread and serving sizes of anything that would be um, flour related, or cut out the flour if that's what you uh, feel prone to do but you've got to control those carbs. You've got to spread the, the carbs out through the day, more high fibers. It's also important to focus on healthy fats. So omega-3s, canola, olive oil, lean meat is fine, but getting away from all the trans fats is, um, is important. Um, for me, I went to a course in California, learned about nutrition, came back, and the first thing I did was uh, bought a lot of uh, expensive cooking stuff and then went out to the farmer's market and started mm-hmm. to know the people who are making the food or growing the food that I was eating. It's really changed how you think about food um, to become not so much about eating because you're hungry, but eating becomes a celebration of the cooking of the people you eat your meal with of the people who created the food for you, that becomes very important as well. So that's the second component is just your relationship with food. And I think I want to call it more relationship with food than diet. For some people, the relationship with food is I don't feel well, I get depressed at times, I eat. I know for me, 8 o'clock at night, I'm alone, not doing anything, and you know those are that's my challenge. And then the third area is insulin sensitizers, and there are medications that can be insulin sensitizers. There are a number of different supplements that also work, and we describe treating PCOS like a three-legged stool. For some people, it's four if they have uh, sleep apnea that needs to be addressed, but a three-legged stool. If you do just one of the legs on it, you're going to fall flat on your face. So in order to be successful, you've got to take into account all those things, diet, strength training exercise, 
and insulin sensitizers to be effective. And what about um, stress reduction? Do you do you feel? I mean, I, I would imagine that a lot of the women that are coming to you, you know, kind of at, at, at this point, they're really stressed about whether they're going to get pregnant or not. Um, does stress I, play a role? It does very much so, and we see that specifically, like in the um, patients with sleep apnea. If you stop breathing and your blood oxygen level drops at night, it's pretty darn stressful, and your body reacts twofold. One, it puts out catecholamines, which can increase your blood pressure and affect appetite, and it puts out cortisol, which makes you more insulin resistant. So the problem with stress is I can't put a finger on it and say, this is your stress level, that means your cortisol is going to be here and... You know, so everybody's response to stress is different, but I do think that stress plays a role, and when your stress hormones are up, you are going to be more insulin resistant. So, yeah, meditation, yoga, massage therapy, acupuncture, um, counseling, whatever the stresses there are in your life that you can deal with, you will be more effective at managing the PCOS by dealing with the stress. And, and I think it's so important that women um, know to look, f- uh, with PCOS, know to look for sleep apnea. I think a lot of women don't realize that there's a connection with PCOS and sleep apnea. And it's, uh, it can and be it, as much as 60%, at 40 to 60% in people who are um, overweight. And when that goes on to diabetes, the number is even higher. It's a, sleep apnea is a big predictor for cardiovascular risk later on. So that's something that ought to be looked at. So and that's a good point about later on. I think a lot of women and um, think that PCOS is a fertility issue. And, you know, once you've gotten pregnant and achieved, you know, your goal, then you know, PCOS isn't something that you have to worry about anymore. Um, and, you know, you've alluded to the fact that it is something that needs to be managed over the course of a lifetime. Um, and, and I also would love for you to just um, kind of tell us what your thoughts are about hysterectomy. You know, I hear from a lot of women in their 30s having hysterectomies to kind of quote-unquote cure their PCOS. And, you know, as you that wonderful, those examples that you um, explained in the beginning of our, our call, that it isn't a really an ovary issue, it's more of an insulin-resistant issue. But tell us about what your thoughts are in PCOS and hysterectomy. Well, I'm going to go a step back because PCO is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, uh-huh. When you're in your teens, it may be crazy periods um, or acne. When you're in your 20s and 30s, it's infertility. In the 30s and 40s, uh, it may be precancerous changes in the uterine lining, dealing with weight, blood pressure, cholesterol comes in there, then heart disease. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. And part of the problem is that it affects many different systems. Um, PCOS never went to medical school and did not know that, you know, if you're a condition that's going to affect the skin, then a dermatologist is going to handle it. If you're dealing with blood pressure or heart problems, then it's a cardiologist. If it's uh, cancer then it's a, a GYN oncologist. If it's fertility, then it's a gynecologist or reproductive endocrine. 
the problem is no one wants to um, look at this condition and acknowledge that at different stages of life, it affects a person differently. And I think women need to plan for that and understand that uh, you don't want to play whack-a-mole. And, you know, hysterectomy is like playing whack-a-mole with PCOS. You're dealing with the ovary and getting rid of the symptoms. You will lower male hormone production, and you will obviously control the bleeding with it, but you're not controlling the underlying disorder, which is the insulin resistance. Um, you're not reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and stroke later on. So I think that it's really unfortunate when a woman goes through a hysterectomy to control the bleeding and assuming that she's really managing her PCOS. She's managing the bleeding, but the underlying causes for the PCOS are still doing damage. In fact, it's just that um, issue that at a recent NIH conference got people thinking, maybe we should change the name of this because ovary goes along for the ride, but the underlying condition is a metabolic disorder. And the interesting thing is that same metabolic disorder can affect women and men. Mm. So when you're um, counseling your couples, are you looking at the the male partner's health as well? Well, um, what's interesting, when the guys come along, a lot of them will also be overweight or they'll have people in their family with diabetes and um, or cholesterol or blood pressure problems. And, you know, no one is hurt by doing the diet and exercise. And we have a lot of guys who will come in and want the insulin glucose tolerance test as well to figure out where they stand on this. So it is not infrequent that we'll look at a guy as well but then we tend to turf them on to um, a medical endocrinologist or cardiologist or their PCP with an understanding of, you know, this is what it needs to do to manage this on a long-term basis. But, I mean, that's part of how I got interested in this was uh, I looked at my labs after going to my doc and I said, you know, if um, I had checked the estrogen here, I might wonder about... Uh, whether I had PCOS, I wasn't having periods, and my cholesterol was up, my blood pressure was going up, my insulin, two-hour insulin was very high, and I figured what I had to do was the same thing that I was telling all the PCOS patients to do. And lo and behold, it, you know, it has helped uh, me restore some of those numbers to uh, to normal. Yeah, I know um, earlier this year I spoke with um, Dr. Andrea Denaif, and mm -hmm. she does a lot of work with PCOS and genetics, and she spoke on our podcast about a male kind of version of PCOS, that there, and there is a genetic component um, that can be passed down from um, that paternal side. Well, it's interesting because... The genetics kind of informs us in two fashions. One, um, there are a lot of people who have PCOS, then they don't. They may not meet the criteria. Since the criteria are ovaries that look polycystic and abnormal bleeding, if you take the hysterectomy out, theoretically, 
you don't have the diagnosis anymore. But I think it's not about that. I think this is about a genetic propensity that if you eat carbohydrates and your insulin goes up, you're going to have all this bad stuff happen to you. And um, what's really neat is that when they've done gene chip experiments, they found that there are over 100 genes that differ between women with PCOS and those who don't have it. And what's, so you have the propensity to this because you got those genes from maybe dad who had high cholesterol, mom who's a diabetic, your sister may have PCOS. So those genes are running in your family. What you do with it is based on what's been going on in your life, your entire life, from now and then into the future. That also creates a challenge because everybody wants to be validated and find out, talk to someone else who's dealt with this, and what have you done and what worked. The thing is that each of those 100-plus genes may come in a variety of, fa variety of fashion. So uh, you have gene type 1, you have gene type 2, you have gene type 3 for one specific gene. And there are hundreds of genes that could have these variations. So, you know, there's got to be uh, close to thousands, hundreds, thousands different combinations of genes that could create a polycystic ovary type syndrome. And then you throw on top of that what's your lifestyle, what's your diet, what's your activity levels. So it turns out that each and every individual has their own PCOS. So what may work for one person may not work for another. That's why it's so important when the patients come in trying to get pregnant that we do a metabolic analysis. We look for inflammation. We look for androgens. We look for insulin resistance. Um, and then... We put that together to try and figure out, okay, so what are you going to need to restore metabolic balance? Once that happens, then we can be more effective at addressing, addressing abnormal hair growth, uh, menstrual cycles, uh, fertility, weight loss. All those things come into play once we have a, um, a finding on what the metabolic abnormalities are. Yeah, I think that's that's really fascinating, and I think that's such an uh, important point that that PCOS it is a syndrome, and it's not going to kind of manifest itself the same in every woman. Um, you know, I'm I am one of those kind of thin PCOS women, um, and may not uh, on the outside you know look like I have PCOS, but um, you know, it certainly when it was out of control, my blood my blood tests certainly said that I did. Um, okay. So I think that it's important that we all realize that our own PCOS situation is unique. And I love that what you said: what might work for one woman may not work for for someone else. And I think I think the important thing in finding a physician and. You know, all the time I'll see people who use metformin and don't understand it, don't give a proper dose. They're still using extended release, which tends not to work as well. Um, but really, a lot of people demonstrate a lack of understanding. I think the important thing is to have a relationship with a physician who is interested in PCOS, not just interested in getting you pregnant, but they're interested in PCOS. 
and really want to get down to the bottom of what's going on there, they will talk to you and listen and be available to answer your questions and um, you know, uh, know which dietitians are knowledgeable, know what kind of edu- uh, exercise programs and uh, where to go for a good sleep study. Those things are, I think, important. And finding the individual who you can trust and relate to as a healthcare practitioner, I think, is most important. Yeah. And I think um, what I would love to sort of end our, our conversation with um, is I get a lot of women who have just found out that they're pregnant and they have PCOS, and they they may be working with one of these doctors that don't know a lot about PCOS, and they, um, they're not really sure what do I do next. Do I have a special situation in early pregnancy because I have PCOS? How should I, do I need to be monitored in any special way? Do I need extra progesterone supplementation? Can you just um, maybe give us some guidelines and maybe your protocol for your PCOS patients? Sure. Again, I think the most important thing is to address those metabolic abnormalities beforehand. we know that there are a couple of uh, areas of concern. One is C-reactive protein is elevated. That is a protein that causes, uh, that's a marker for inflammation. There's another one called TNF-alpha. These will affect the development of the placenta and placental blood vessels. If the inflammatory response is there, by the time you find out you're pregnant, I'm not sure that there's much in the way of intervention after the fact that can make a difference in the pregnancy. We know that people who conceived with Clomid um, may have twice the miscarriage rate if they haven't addressed the insulin resistance first. So it's important to get on metformin, normalize and reduce the uh, inflammatory response before attempting pregnancy. Um, Progesterone doesn't play a role here. If you have a, a sick placenta, if you have an egg that came from an unhealthy follicle, that has nothing to do with progesterone. Giving more or less isn't going to make any difference at all. Uh, we do sometimes, if people come in and they haven't been on the medication, uh, we'll recommend things like fish oil. NAC is an antioxidant. A low-dose mm-hmm. uh, low aspirin may be helpful. And with metformin, Normally, we'll carry it through 12 weeks if someone has impaired glucose levels or impaired glucose tolerance or very high levels will continue the metformin throughout the pregnancy. If they are lean um, PCOS, then oftentimes we use ovocytol or avocetol um, just because we don't want to see the weight loss that metformin might be associated We're going to recommend diet and strength training exercises as well for that woman. So I think just because you're pregnant is not the time to go on a carb binge. Yeah, exactly. No burgers and fries um, and shakes. But I I (laughs) do think, you know, the best way to intervene is before the pregnancy happens. So you mentioned Avocetol, and I've written about Avocetol on um, PCOS Diva, but for those that aren't familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Um, uh, the 
drug my or the uh, chemical myoinositol and dechiroinositol are actually sugars. They're not sugars that take insulin to get in the cell. But when they get in the cell, they improve insulin um, uh, function, and they it's kind of like giving that car engine that was out of tune, giving it a tune-up. So um, you can buy inositol over-the-counter, myoinositol. Uh, there's some question about... Uh, damage to inositol when exposed to air. So it's you can either buy it as ovocetol or as pregnitude. Both of those are packaged as individual doses with 2,000 milligrams of myoinositol um, twice a day. Uh, you take these packets, open them, put them in some water, iced tea, or something like that, and you drink this twice a day that doesn't have much of any flavor at all. Uh, the difference, the ovocetol has dechiroinositol as well, and it turns out that at a ratio of 40 to 1, inositol to dechiro appears to peak the muscles best in terms of improving muscle strength, in terms of um, glucose uptake and energy utilization. So... Um, I've had one or two patients who've said that um, it had a dramatic effect on their carb cravings, uh, meaning they were reduced. And it was interesting, one of them was a pastry chef who said, you know, I don't feel like I need to taste the stuff I'm cooking anymore <laughs> because yeah, I've, of that. I've been taking it for a long time and um, and really, really love it um, and feel the same way. It really helps to manage sugar and carb cravings. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dr. Perlo, I like to end these calls on um, a positive um, note. I'd love for you to give us kind of a message of hope for women that are listening um, that, you know, may, may be trying to conceive, um, but for women with PCOS in general. Well, I think the, the best part about PCOS is that we are learning more and more about it all the time. We have a lot of tools, uh, and many of those tools you can gain access whether you have a physician or not. Your body knows what to do. And since your body knows what to do, you can coax it along. It's great when you have a physician partner to help, but even without that, you can make this happen. The majority of the people can get their cycles normalized without having to... Um, you know, to have that physician partner putting drugs on them or going through mm -hmm. fertility treatment. Mm -hmm. And the benefits well, of that are going to be lifelong. Right. And, again, it's, it's so important to manage this syndrome over the course of a lifetime. Um, well, thank you so much for your time and, gosh, just your vast knowledge. This has just been – there's so many – great nuggets of information um, that you've shared with us tonight. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening as well. So um, join us again for um, our next podcast. But until then, goodbye.